0: Our Father, in Jesus' name, we come to You thanking You for what You have done for us each and every day. Sometimes, Father, it seems that we take for granted the many blessings that come from Your hand, but we're reminded in Scripture, in in the first chapter of James, we're told that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning. And Lord, it is in Your immutability that we trust that You are the God that we read about in Genesis and the God of Revelation, that You're the God who speaks to us as You have spoken to the men and women through the thousands of years of biblical and church history. And Father, we ask that You will speak to us today from Your Word, that Your Spirit will be here in a powerful way, touching our lives. Father, many different needs are represented here this morning. There may be those with uh, deep burdens, and I pray, Father, that you will speak to those needs according to your great power and grace today. O Lord, we ask that wherever your word is being proclaimed today, that you will be glorified and that many, many will be brought into your kingdom. And we ask that as this classes are being taught here uh, on this campus and as the second service uh, takes place, that you will be powerfully present in each of those venues in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to the seventh chapter of the book of Joshua I'd like to read beginning at verse 10 and the Lord said to Joshua rise up why is it that you have fallen on your face Israel has sinned and they have also transgressed my covenant which I have commanded them and they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have put them among their own things. Therefore the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning, then you shall come near by your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families. And the family which the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And it shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. This passage of Scripture clearly illustrates three very important truths by way of, of reminding ourselves of what we've already looked at. First of all, we find from this passage in the 7th chapter of Joshua that God is very serious about sin. He does not have the cavalier attitude about sin that is rampant in our society today. Secondly, that sin cannot be hidden. It cannot be done with impunity. Do it, and no big deal. There will be no ramifications. The attitude of many. And we noted last week from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, these words, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And that's one of the most important things to remember about God is that he is everywhere. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He sees all things. And therefore, that is, of course, to those who want to do hidden things, that's, uh, that's a fearful thought. But to to those of us who want to walk openly before him, that's a wonderful thing. Because we know there's no reason to hide or no reason to flee. Because he already knows who we are to the very depths of our being. Thirdly, we discover from this passage that sin impacts the whole community. It is not an isolated thing that involves just the one person. It involves the whole community. Thirty-six men died because of Achan's greed. Thirty-six men died. Because of Achan's greed. And beyond that, the Canaanites laughed at Israel. And Israel lost their will, their confidence. Why? Because of one man's sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we read a passage from that uh, at the end of class last week, speaking where Paul is speaking of incest by one of the church members, Paul says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? To me, it reminds me of an illustration I heard once where a man was talking about the influence of sin and he was saying, if you were to take a glass of water and a glass of ink and you take an eyedropper and you, you take a little eyedropper full of ink out of the one with the ink and drip it into the clear water, how much ink does it take before it's visible in the clear water? But if you start taking eyedroppers from clear water and putting it in the ink, how much water does it take before you don't see any ink left in the jar, you know? And this illustrates the fact that sin can impact a whole community very quickly, whereas getting rid of sin by a little bit of righteousness is basically an impossible task. The tragedy before Ai brought Joshua and the elders before God at the tabernacle. And that's where we left them. They were bowed down on their faces before the tabernacle. They had torn their clothes. They had put ashes on their heads and they were crying out to God, And you remember Joshua asked various questions that we highlighted last week, which implied, not directly stated, but implied, oh God, why have you done this to us? As if Israel had done everything they were supposed to do, but it was God who had somehow messed up. Well, as we look further this morning, we discover that the first thing God does is to say to Joshua, get off your face, you know? You can't see anything with your face in the ground. Uh, take a look around. God can never fail. If God can never fail, then who should Joshua be questioning, God or Israel? Well, God promised to give Israel victory. And since God never fails to keep his promises, then obviously the only possible cause for their failure was disobedience in Israel. That was a natural flow of logic as far as God saw it. And certainly Joshua saw it once God brought it to his attention, but at first he could just think of nothing. But God, somehow, what, you know, you failed us and, and we've, we're crying out to you. Now, of course, when we look at this, we, we think about the fact that what is this sin? The sin is that Achan, in the, in the destruction of the city of Joshua, he came across this fine uh, mantle and a little bit of silver, and a little bit of gold. And he thought, well, no big deal. I'll just stick it in my little pack here and take it home and hide it away and as we look at that we might say well you know that's really not a big sin no it's not like he embezzled 10 million dollars or murdered somebody directly but in god's eyes i think we discover from this passage that there is no such thing as a small sin we understand how serious it was to god when we read in this passage the warning that god gave to joshua that he, he said i will not be with you or israel anymore until this sin is dealt with. Period. End of argument. So what did God do? He commanded Joshua to discipline Israel. Call the congregation. They were to halt all their plans. Everything they were doing right now, just call a halt to everything and prepare yourselves to face God. Consecrate yourselves, God said to Joshua, tell Israel to consecrate themselves. So they were to do the prescribed ceremonial cleansing to get ready to stand in the presence of Almighty God. And the point of this was, of course, so that God could identify the sin and the sinner, and the whole issue could be dealt with. Now, we think about uh, various passages of Scripture and various events that have taken place in, in history, and we know very well that God could have just struck Achan dead. Boom! done with it you know miraculous instantaneous surgery but one of the things we discover about god is he is the consummate teacher god is ever about teaching teaching us what it is to know him and to obey him and so god chose rather than himself to remove Achan from the midst of israel he decided that it was better for him and for better for israel i should say that he teach Israel a powerful lesson involving them in both the investigation and in the punishment of the transgressor. After Joshua issued the command that all the people gather together and that they prepare themselves for God to deal with this, crime, this sin in their midst, the people had plenty of time as they did this preparation to reflect on the holiness of God. Because within the next few hours, by the next day, they had, will have moved. In fact, in the past two days before this, they had moved from a place where they were enjoying the delightful fruits of obedience to God. They had moved into the situation where they were solemnly facing the frightening experience of consequences of sin. It was kind of almost like a manic depressive thing, you know, from a high to a low. Whew, bam. You know, the elevator cord was cut in a hurry, and, and they spiritually, emotionally dropped. Can you imagine what went through the minds of the people when they finally heard from Joshua the cause of this defeat, and that God was calling them into his presence for a review and to isolate the sin and the sinner? I think this caused people throughout the nation, and especially the men who had participated in the destruction of the city of Jericho, to quickly mentally review their own actions. Whoops, what did I do when I was in Jericho, you know? They, they probably tried to analyze, did I inadvertently do something that has displeased God Almighty? Others of course looked around and thought, who, who has brought this upon us? Who is responsible? for this sin in our midst and for this predicament in which they found themselves. And I'm sure many were just praying to God it was not anybody of their family or or of their friends. Well, let's read on. Verse 16. So Joshua arose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought the family of Judah near, and he took the family of the Zarahites and he brought the family of the Zarahites near man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought his household near man by man, and Achan the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zarah, from the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. I don't know if you can visualize this, but certainly when it says God had the whole nation gathered, the whole nation consecrated themselves. But certainly those who came to stand before Joshua were the heads of all the households. They wouldn't have brought the whole mob here because this would have been an impossible scene. But here, here were the heads of the households. And, and I think this all occurred right outside the entrance to the precinct of the tabernacle. There in the center of the Israelite camp. And the, the heads of the tribes and the heads of the clans and the heads of the families uh, all met together. And we're told in the passage that lot was used to determine who, who to be picked. And this is not uh, without a further example in Scripture. We know that the whole concept of the Urim and the Thummim had something to do with a kind of a lot situation where God would guide the, the choice. And, and we know clear back in the days of Samuel, or later in the days of Samuel, this, this particular type of uh, discovery of the will of God was used. It was very clear here that the lots which were used were controlled by God himself because it was just bing, 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 bing. Bam, you're the man, you know? <laughs> no false uh, starts, no rabbit trails, nothing. Just right down the line, uh, straight to the individual. Now, can you just just... Put yourself in the place of these leaders, all standing there, waiting to find out what God's word is on this. And as soon as the tribe of Judah was picked, 11 other tribal leaders went, whew, you know. Not our tribe. Not our tribe. Thank God for that. Leaders of Judah, of course, had a few things to begin to think about that, of course. Uh, The drama was heightened, of course, as the choice narrowed. Because obviously Judah was a very large tribe. And so there were many clans within Judah. And so they were anticipating the narrowing of the choice. And when the Zerahite clan was picked, suddenly the other clans all went, you know. But the Zerahites suddenly, whoa, you know, their heartbeat quickened. And the clan members, probably leaders, began to look around wondering, who has dishonored our clan? I think the emotions here were very, very tense and strong. Whether it was the increasing intensity of your, you know, of it narrowing in and you being a member of the family that was closest to Achan, or the relief that was felt by those who were not a part of this because another family, another clan was taken. In either case, I think we can believe it was embossed on their brains. And they would not quickly forget this encounter before God Almighty. Because it was an intense thing, they knew what the punishment was. They knew what the tragedy was that they had already experienced. They didn't look at it as this nation today is looking at sin in its midst. At first, Achan, I think, felt that as long as he kept his mouth shut, there was no way he's going to be discovered because thousands of men had participated in the, in the onslaught in Jericho and the burning of the city and the leveling of the city. Thousands of men. How could they find one amongst thousands? I'm sure that was his initial thought when everybody gathered. He says, they'll never find me. But as the selection narrowed towards him, I think he became acutely aware that God was involved in this and God was telling on him. And Joshua was was discovering one clue after the other, directly from God, leading straight to Achan. If if he was a man of any sense, as this began to become obvious, he should have known he was a dead duck, so to speak. But you know what is interesting about this passage is that it really reveals reveals to us something about the character of this man, Achan. Because he refuses to admit his guilt until Joshua is standing right in his face with his finger at his nose saying, you're the man, tell me what happened. I mean, he refuses. Even though it's coming down, it's coming closer, he doesn't jump up and say, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. Oh, God, forgive me. You know, he doesn't cast himself on the mercy of God. He holds out until there is no other option. In spite of the fact he knew that the whole nation was suffering because of his sin and would continue to suffer until it was dealt with. So the character of this man is fitting with his crime, so to speak. It wasn't just an isolated act of, oh, that looks so pretty, I'll just stick in here and inadvertently running off with it and forgetting that it was under the ban. This was a man whose character leads towards the kind of activity in which he participated. Now, he may have had remorse for his sin. I think he did, just like many criminals are sorry for their sins simply because they've been caught, And and they're going to have to pay for it. But there doesn't seem to be in this passage any inclination or any implication that he was repentant. When forced, he does confess to having taken the plunder and hidden it in his tent. He does go so far as to say, I have sinned against the Lord. Well, I mean, it's obvious, you know, you're his Joshua's finger was in his nose, and what else could he say? Yes, I have sinned against the Lord, and it was the sin was covetousness. You know, he, he admitted it, but I don't think it was an admission sparked by a repentant heart. I think if he could have avoided that finger and, and uh, somebody else would have been blamed, he would have accepted that. I don't think he would have taken the blame. I think he would have let somebody else roast. I think that's the kind of person he was, and it seems to come out here in this particular passage. The exact nature of the plunder is given to us there in the, in the 21st verse. Uh, first of all, there was a fine Babylonian mantle, a mantle from Shinar. Shinar was a, a plain there around the city of Babylon. Secondly, there was a small pile of silver, 200 shekels in weight, which would be about five pounds, which translated into uh, our money system today would be somewhere in the neighborhood of $300 worth of silver. And then 50 shekels of gold, which would be about a pound and a quarter, worth about $4,500 today. So altogether, maybe $5,000 worth of uh, goods there that he had picked up for $5,000 36 men had died. For $5,000, the Canaanites were given a cause to rejoice and the Israelites were given great pain, spiritually, emotionally, and even physically. Is there a dollar value that could be placed on the life of a person? Is there a dollar value that can be placed on sin? I don't think so. People have taken lives for a whole lot less than that even. The gold and the silver had specifically been reserved by God. It had been put under the ban, which meant it was cursed so that it could only be brought to the tabernacle and be put through the ceremonial cleansing and then incorporated into the treasury of the tabernacle. God had ordained that. It put all the the metals, bronze, iron, gold, silver, all the metals had been put under the ban, meaning to touch them was to be cursed by them. To touch them for your own use would be to be cursed by them. And so that's what God is saying. This man has brought a curse on Israel because he purposely picked up that which was cursed and brought it into his own house and thus brought the curse to himself and the cursed Israel. The gold and the silver was not cursed in a a, kind of a ultimate sense because it simply was to be ceremonially purified and incorporated into the temple treasury, the tabernacle treasury. So Achan was not only yielding to his covetousness, he was stealing that which was God's. Let's read the last verses of the chapter. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. And they took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to the sons of Israel, and they poured them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they were burned with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over them a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. This is one of the scripture passages that uh, people who are into debunking scripture and and people who are into atheism and agnosticism will point to and say, look, what kind of a God is this who who would allow such a tragedy be brought because one guy just picked up a little gold and silver? It misses the whole point altogether. God has allowed extreme things to happen so that people, we who are very <laughs> uneasily taught, would begin to get the point because eternity is a very long time and this life is very short. And it's what we do for eternity that really matters in this life, whether that means we have a pleasant life or not, whether we have a, sh- a long life or not. You know, I've, I've talked to people at various uh, occasions who who think that, you know, you, you just want to be sure that, that people live as long and as well as possible, and that's the really best good there is in life. Well, you probably recognize already by now how quickly we come to the end of that long life, however long it might be. Uh, time just accelerates as you go through the years. And, you know, I, even even as I look back, it doesn't seem that long ago that I was a teenager, and yet it was a while back. And, you know, and... and I look at my life and I think, whoa, you know, the amount that's passed is a whole lot more than I'm likely to have yet coming. And, and so when you, when you bring it into perspective, then what God is teaching us makes so much sense. Joshua dispatched some men to go dig up the contraband. The evidence was to be brought before the, quote, court, as it were. Probably not very many in Israel were neutral in their feelings about Achan at this point. I think that there were some who were coming to a place of despising the man, but I don't think that was the majority opinion. I think the majority pitied him. I think the majority thought, you know, that's really not far from where we could have been. I think many of the men who went in there had looked at some of the plunder and thought, ooh, I'd like to have that, but, but had resisted. But they knew how close they were to just grabbing a little stick in it in their, well, probably didn't have pockets, in their little pack or whatever, you know, they were carrying And and I'm, I'm sure many of them thought, oh, how close I was. How close I was. And so I think they pitied the man. And I think in many ways they were just so thankful they were not in his place. Because Achan had become a cancer in Israel. And you and I all know what has to be done with cancer. It must be radically, surgically removed. Therefore, Achan and his family and all that he possessed were taken outside the camp to a ravine nearby, and they're all Israel, meaning the, the leaders of, of the clans and of the tribes, participated in the execution of this man and of everything, every living thing that belonged to him. Now, we have to believe, the scripture teaches us, and we've looked at the passage back in, in the Pentateuch, where God specifically said that the sin of the father will not be laid on the shoulders of the son. So how is it that the children were taken out and executed too? Well, I think the only thing we can come to believe about this is somehow they were implicated. Somehow they knew about it. Somehow they were in the cover-up. Somehow they allowed this thing to be a cancer in their family. And there they were, therefore they were worthy to die too. There's no mention of a wife here. It says, Achan, his sons and his daughters, his wife is not mentioned. That may mean several things. It may mean that he was a widower. That's, that's a distinct possibility. Could mean that his wife was not par- implicated and was not part of this. Or it could simply mean she just was not mentioned. <laughs> the stoning of Achan was a purging of the sin of Israel. Let me turn back to the 17th chapter of Deuteronomy. In the 17th chapter of Deuteronomy, We read, beginning, well, let's read verse 6 first. On the evidence of two witnesses, or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. Afterward, the hand of the people. So you shall purge evil from your midst. So you shall purge evil from your midst. This was a purging of evil. This does not mean that all Israel was sinless at that moment and only Achan was a sinner. But it does mean that that sin which God had pointed out because it was a sin directly against God, directly against His specific orders before the city was taken, it had to be dealt with and it would be a lesson to all Israel that whatever the sin might be, God does not deal with it. God does not overlook it. God does not allow it to exist with impunity. The horror of this sin was further expressed by the fact that the bodies were not buried, which was the typical Israelite practice, but they were burned. As a reminder, therefore, to subsequent generations of the imperative nature of obedience to God's word, because this is the bottom line here. The bottom line is that it is imperative to obey the Word of God. Now, we in our society find out, discover all kinds of uh, interesting little ways to to not obey the Word of God. Well, we say it doesn't really apply in this situation. Or there is some doubt as to whether this passage really means what it says, seems to say here. I mean, all these kinds of distortions are happening all the time, and and you probably are aware of that. Uh, Largely, of course, it's ignorance. Most people are ignorant of the Bible. Most people have never read the Bible, in part or in whole. And, of course, ignorance is uh, an excuse, right? Well, even our laws tell you that ignorance is not an excuse. You tell the policeman, well, I, I didn't know that making a left turn against a red light was against the law. You know? He's not going to say, oh, you didn't know that? Oh, well, let me just tell you about that. And next time you'll remember, right? He says, sorry, Charlie. <laughs> Here you are. You'll remember next time for sure, won't you? Well, Israel will remember next time for sure. Because they participated. It was a horrendous act. You put yourself, if you can, if you can just imagine yourself trying to pick up a rock and throw it at somebody with the intent of killing them. That was not a pleasant thing. They did it because God demanded it of them. God demands the hard things of his people. So that we realize that um, life is is not cheap and and life is not breezy and and life is not just a bowl of cherries. Life is a matter of walking the straight and narrow. We're, we're to go through the small gate and walk the narrow way. It doesn't say walk through, you know, on, on the road to Disneyland here. It, it almost seems like in Scripture that God cannot tell us enough times of what it means to be obedient, what the importance of obedience is. Well, a pile of rocks was raised over the remains of Achan and, and his family and all that he had. And that pile of rocks was to loudly declare in the midst of Israel, the wages of sin is death. Anybody seeing that pile of rocks could not help but be reminded of what the cost of disobedience is. The site was even named for the incident, the Valley of Achor, which means the Valley of Trouble. Israel's willingness to do the hard thing here and to deal with this sin I don't think a single person threw a stone with joy. I think as the crowd gathered around and had to begin flinging the stones, there were many who kind of shoved their way back in the crowd so that they wouldn't have to actually fling some of the stones. But because they did what they were commanded to do, in spite of the fact it was difficult for them to do, the wrath of God was turned away and their victory was restored. And as you come to the eighth chapter of Joshua, It's almost like a cloud lifts. The cloud of the seventh chapter lifts in the eighth chapter. And we read beginning the first verse of the eighth chapter. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and rise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai what and and its king, just as you did to Jericho and its king. You shall take only its spoil and its cattle as plunder for yourselves. Set an ambush for the city behind it. So Joshua rose with all the men of war to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 men, valiant warriors, and sent them out at night. And he commanded them, saying, See, you are going to ambush the city from behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and it will come out uh, about when, we come out, when they come out to meet us as at first, that we will flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city, for they will say they are fleeing before us as at first, so we will flee before them. Then you shall rise from your ambush and take possession of the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. Then it will be when you have seized the city that you shall set the city on fire. You shall do to it according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them away, and they went to the place of the ambush and remained between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people." To imagine ourselves as Joshua, it's a bit of a difficult task, I think, but to cast yourself before the Lord as Joshua did and cry out and say, why has this great disaster come, in, come upon us? And now to hear the word of the Lord saying, do not fear or be dismayed. This is the plan and this is how we're going to take the city. He knew that the favor of God had returned to him in Israel when he heard those words, do not fear or be dismayed. Because these are the very same words of encouragement that he had heard from God several weeks ago when he first assumed command over Israel from Moses. In that instance, God said to him, in the first instance, God had said to him, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Wherever you go, Joshua. And I think Joshua believed that, and that's part of the reason he was so so distraught as he fell on his face before God. You had said you'll be with me wherever I go. What happened? Did you forget? Were you busy? In this instance, recorded here in chapter 8, Joshua is to discover, at least in part, what it means when God says, I'll be with you wherever you go. Because God promises now, I'm going to give you the city, and this is how you're going to do it. Joshua and Israel had a role to play in making God's promise a reality. You and I all know that God can do whatever God chooses to do. He is almighty. He is sovereign. He can affect anything He wants to affect. But He chooses to use you and me to do it. He chooses to use angels to do things that He could do. He doesn't need angels. But He created angels and empowered them to carry out His will. Why? Because He wanted the joy that they would have of serving Him. God wants his joy to be spread around, and he wants us to know the pleasure of serving him. So God gave Joshua a plan to capture the city. In the case of Jericho, of course, we know God had miraculously destroyed the walls. He just crashed them down. They fell, collapsed, totally destroyed. Why did he do that? God did that so that the Israelites, as they embarked upon the conquest of the land, would have absolute confidence in the fact that God was with them and God could give them victory no matter how great the walls might seem or how powerful the armies might be. They would have victory. So that gave them a confidence because God destroyed the walls. Now God could have demolished the walls of Ai also, just as he had those of Jericho. But instead he chose to inspire Joshua with a brilliant plan of you know, tactical maneuver rather than a small force of two to 3,000, which the spies had said, "That's all we need two or three thousand. take this city a piece of cake, you know. Instead of that, God tells Joshua, a 30,000man army will be used." And we talked last time about what all that might mean, even though they didn't have to literally besiege the city. Those were proper numbers to use to besiege a city the size of I. The cockiness displayed by that original two to 3,000 men is no longer seen. These 30,000 men move in humble obedience to God. Their confidence is being restored. God is going to give us the victory. Who are we anyway? You know, the tragedy which happens within Christian circles sometimes is when people think that we have done this thing for God. We have saved this person. We have healed this person rather than being humbly acknowledging the fact that we simply were the agency, the tool that God used to perform the miracle. Well, instead of a frontal assault, which is apparently what they planned before, they're going to rush right up against the city and just take it, you know. They're going to take the city by roost this time. Israel needed to be convinced, and I think this is a very important truth that comes out of this here. Israel needed to be convinced, firmly convinced, that God's promise to be with them did not give them an excuse to be careless and ill-disciplined in the preparation and execution of the task at hand. Israel needed to learn the art of war. Israel needed to learn how to prepare strategically and tactically military operations. Not because God couldn't give them the victory without that, but because God demands the best from his people. If you're going to be a soldier, he wants you to be a good soldier, by any standard, a good soldier. He expected them to be the best they could be. And to me, this is a powerful lesson to us as Christians. We sometimes miss this, and I see this a lot in our society. We have a, we used to attend a church where one of the, the youth pastor used to term the word, used the word sloppy agape. You know, it's, it's kind of an interesting phrase. It's kind of, you know, like God's love covers everything, so it doesn't really matter how sloppy we are in whatever area you're talking about. Jesus said to his people, I will be with you to the end of the age. We're told in the scripture that if we're true believers, we will be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Since we have Jesus with us, the Holy Spirit with us, we are empowered. Does that mean that we could just go clumsily through life and God will do it all? No. I think it means we, just, we need to strive to do every task well. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, we read, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All to the glory of God. At the college, I you know, try to drive this home to the students. Your studies are part of the glory of God. And just as you may play basketball with all your might, you need to study with all your might. You need to do it not because of a grade. You need to do it not just to make your folks happy. You need to do it because God is looking down, and that's what He expects. Well, I don't have time to... Uh, a few more things I wanted to say about this. I'll just pick that up next Sunday. It's a, it's a good point. It won't hurt to, uh, for us to repeat it and look at a couple of passages of Scripture that further that point.